And it's every playlist tells a story. I'm Todd. I'm Jimmy. And we're back. Uh, what's going on, man? Man, summer's coming on. Summer's happening. We're going to get up to the 90s this weekend, uh, yeah. aren't we? We've uh, broken out of this cloudy, rainy, cool breeze. It's uh, it's happening. Yeah, it's a... Uh, what's a pool situation? This weekend. This weekend. This weekend. Okay. Happening. Okay. Yep, so... All right, so... But it'll still be weeks before I even attempt to get in it, just because I, uh, like, I well, like cold water. What, is it going to be in the 70s at night, 80s at night? Something or? like that, yeah. Really? Okay. Yeah, upper 60s, low 70s at night, so... Oh, well, you'll you'll be there this weekend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. If you get something in the 90s. I don't, I don't get in under like 82 to 85 is my bare minimum. Oh, you'll, you'll be fine. Okay. You'll All be right. fine. I think you'll find well, yourself wanting to get in. We'll see how that goes. Especially after that, you know, mowing down all those uh, geese out there. Right. Yeah. Or shooting, well, you shoot firecrackers first just, before you clear the yard. I just make noise to spook them off. Yeah. You know, we said he lives next to a, there used to be a stripper pit. Stripper like? pit, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So. A lot of Canadian geese. Lots of um, geese. And I've got video of Todd, Todd <clears throat> shooting firecrackers at them to clear the yard. Not, let's clarify, not at them. In in the air. Around, in the air with the possibility of, of, the, of them being hit by it no, directly. not want to point them pretty well straight up. Well, it's, it's going to land somewhere. Yeah, but it's going to pop before it lands. I do my best to... But to, the to physical be, to be in the vicinity to spook them off, but I I don't ever dare try to hit any of them because as much as they're a pain in the ass, I do enjoy seeing them. Well, maybe we upload the video and let people judge for themselves. <laughs> well, we'll have to see if we have time to do that. Okay. All right. All right. Uh, now, just you know, going to Florida this weekend, celebrating the wife's birthday. There you go. Um, you know. I go to a ball, you know, see my Tampa Bay Rays. I'm a Cardinal fan, right? But my my AL teams are Rays. Okay, uh, just because I used to live down in Sarasota back in the '90s right. when they were getting started. So hopefully, get a game in. I saw where Bush Stadium, St. Louis Cardinals. Uh, I think it's June. I want to say June 15th, somewhere around there. 100 percent capacity. Nice. Going back to full capacity. Yeah, the world's opening back up. Yeah. Disney World, you don't have to wear a mask outside anymore. Okay. So, yeah, it's it's happening. We're, and we're starting to get a lot of shows back at, back at work. Yeah, yeah. The schedule's getting busy. My schedule's starting to pack up as well. Starting to. We've talked for a year about how we're going to do this whenever things go back to normal. It's time to start figuring out what that plan is because it's getting hectic. Yeah. Quickly. Yeah. Roll with the punches. That's right. Hey, before we dive into too awful much, I did want to just take a minute and thanks to Cam from Carbellion again for being on the podcast last week and talking to us and telling us uh, telling us a story. It's cool having him on. Yeah, it opened up uh, a lot of conversation, a lot of things, a lot of possibilities for this podcast. Talking about the industry. Yeah, um, yeah. and I I got some follow up. Oh, here to we go. Your Is Rock Dead? Okay. Question. And I've, I've got a little bit as well. Yeah, you know, well, in this for this song, it's kind of blended in, and one of the um, interviews I looked at had a lot to say about that question. Okay, that's very interesting angles I didn't think about. Oh, okay, you know, guy, you know, an insider talking about, you know, the music industry and what's going on with the rock and all that kind of stuff. Okay, I don't know if I agree with all of it, but we'll get into it. All right, sounds good. 
in my happy 50th uh, birthday list of things to talk about, May 21st, 1971, Marvin Gaye, What's Going On? Oh, yeah. His 11th studio album, known for its introspective lyrics that explore drug use, poverty, and the Vietnam War, was credited with promoting ecological issues, regarded as one of the greatest albums of all times, and contains the the hits What's Going On and Mercy, Mercy Me, among others. Just really, I, I was watching something the other day, and it mentioned that record again and just talked about how just greatest record of all time based on the content and the composition is just still very, very highly regarded. I know the song. I don't know the album. Yeah, it's it's. I've I've kind of started shuffling through the record itself and listening to it, but I haven't really had a chance to sit down and and dive deep into it. But uh, I think the show I was watching was like the last twenty four hours of Marvin Gaye, so it was mm-hmm. like kind of recapped the last day of his life and gets a lot of family drama in there. I guess he was shot and killed by his father yeah. over a dispute. Yeah, I remember that happening when I was a kid, and I yeah. was like. Damn, yeah. Know, what the hell? It's, I didn't know the story though. Yeah, I, th- I think he uh he got famous, bought a house for his parents. His dad was like a really strict what a religious person. According to the the show I was watching, a lot of people were coming over. He was partying, doing drugs in the house. His dad was not happy about it and turned into a dispute and shot him dead. So, hmm. is he I guess his dad's probably long Past. You know what? It didn't really. I didn't do any follow up on. That was like more than now. Yeah, it's been a while. I, I would suspect that he's probably passed away as well. But he sure he was in prison for it. Again, didn't do much follow up okay. on. Okay, right. so I don't know. Yeah, great song though. Yep. And then uh, what I've got here, we've we've done some posts, do some follow up on those. We did a couple weeks ago. What makes you? What song makes you want to start party drinking? Had some interesting uh, responses. Michael Hawley threw out Let the Good Times Roll by the Cars. Let the Good Times Roll. Yeah, Rick Ocasek. Yeah, that's a great so, album. First yeah. album. I wouldn't have thought of that song, though. I mean, it's you get your party drinking songs or pump-up songs. That's not, to me, it's not a pump It's a great song, but I don't. And Jonathan Carr, by the way, he's the one who sings it, I think. Oh, is it really? Yeah, I think. It's John- not Rick Ocasek? Okay. I mean, I think Jonathan sung most of that album. Okay. But there were a couple of tracks I think Rick sung. Okay. I stand corrected. Well, that whole, you know, let them brush your rock and roll hair. I mean, that's Jonathan. That's right. a, definitely. Uh, Ernest High throughout the old Motley Crue. Benjamin start- Carr. I'm sorry. Benjamin Carr. Yeah. Yes. Jonathan Carr. I don't know where the hell I got that. I think I was a, I think it wasn't the cornerback for the Baltimore Ravens. Yeah. I don't know those. Okay. I don't know the names. All right. Sorry. Ernest High throughout the Kickstart My Heart, Motley Crew. He hears the Kickstart My Heart. He's ready to start party drinking. Good for him. Yeah. I'm, no comment. No I, comment. I got comments, but I'll leave it. Yeah, you'll you'll already, keep them to yourself. I've already There's no wrong answers. That. There's no wrong answers. There's, hey, we this all is, got this, our is, this is their truth. Right. Uh, recent guest, Cameron Kellenberger from Carbellion, just oh. mentioned him. Yeah. He threw in Hot Blooded by Foreigner. <laughs> <laughs> I was sick of Les Nessman. Remember, he put that wig on in WKRP. Right. He, he, a toupee. But I like vaguely remember it, yeah. But the way he shook his hair when he like, came up, you know, to face the camera. Right. And that song was jamming. Nice. It's like Les was ready to get his swerve on. That's right. 
And another uh, recent guest, Jr. the Handler, threw out, uh, all my rowdy friends are coming over tonight, little Hank Jr. Get, oh, yeah. That gets him ready for some party drinking. One of the best videos ever made. Oh, yeah. I mean, you got all the, you know, like Waylon and Willie playing cards, and yep. they both got cards up their sleeves or something. Yeah, that was, that was, all, that was a who's who video. Oh, that yeah. That was a great one. Oh, yeah. So those those were the answers I got on the what song makes you want to start party drinking. I also threw out last week on... Uh, did, did you say yours? What your yours was? I don't know if I ever heard. I mean, I like that shot song. I mean, it kind of came up from that shot. Is that your number one? I uh, I don't know. I mean, that seemed like more of a tribute to a night. Yeah, it's it, it could be a tribute. It could also be a start. Um Man, I don't know. I'd have to think about. I, it. I thought about it. I, I oh think, yeah, what's yours? I think it would be, and it's just me. Like he, you mentioned, kickstart my heart. Mine would be "Shake Your Foundations" by ACDC. Okay, because that that whole album is just that's is that that was designed fly on the wall, fly on the wall. Yeah, that whole album is designed to be. You got to drink to listen to that thing. Right, it's a party drink. All right, yeah, right. Shake your foundations, yeah. definitely. Okay, all right. Yeah, you know, shots the Andrew WK. Party hard's a good <laughs> right. selection. Right. Yeah. Um, probably way too many country songs to mention. <clears throat> oh, yeah. Hillbilly Deluxe, Brooks and Dunn. Hank Jr.'s definitely but, yeah, the, number one for a, me, that's too. That's a solid. Yeah. it's a solid. Yeah. And then the question from last week is, Rock Dead really only got one response from uh, Stuck 5 on Instagram. He says, it's not dead, but it is redefined. That's a... That's a tough question to ask or to get an answer around because it's not, it's never going to be dead. Right. It'd probably, I would, I mean, more like why is rock struggling compared to other genres, you know? It's, it's, I think I said it last week. I think it's just cyclical. It's just, it's just the cycle every now and then it comes back and it's got a whole new version. We had the new metal stuff and that made it popular for a while, you know, then the pouty, sad kind of stained kind of poor me stuff was popular for a while and i just think it's taking a nap i think rock's kind of taking a nap and doing its thing and it'll come back and do something funky and it'll be popular again yeah it's gonna there'll be an underground movement yeah somewhere i don't know if it's gonna come out of seattle again or oh yeah i don't i don't yeah i'd be interested to see if there's another movement out of a region a sunset strip kind of thing yeah you know, the 80s um, well then you had like that whole athens georgia rem kind of sound as well yeah detroit with alice detroit. cooper and iggy pop and yeah so it, it it'll come out somewhere it'll pop up somewhere it's just you know it's, it's waiting for something to grab onto i mean that's, that's a bunch of stuff i follow there it, there's a bunch of rock bands out there but i don't know if any nobody's really making waves yet so it's just a matter of matter of waiting it out i guess yeah if it can if it can make money if it can make money that's yeah. correct that's yeah and correct. like i said i'm gonna dive into that one a little bit okay that's all I got before we get going here. You got anything to add? No. Okay. No. Well, I believe I go first this week, so I am going to dive right in. I ran across an article a couple weeks ago. It was one of those parody comedy webpage things that I read from time to time, and the, the headline read, Man Who Admitted to Kind of Liking One Nickelback Song 15 Years Ago Still Nicknamed Nickelback. Nickelback. You're so, going with Nickelback. I'm going Nickelback this week, <sighs> and I'm and and it, again, I saw this headline on this comedy article and just kind of chuckled to myself. But it kind of got me thinking: Why does Nickelback? Why does Nickelback 
catch so much shit. Theories. You're asking I'm me? I'm asking you. I think it's just... Um, I think it's just kind of co- such a corporate... Like, this is... if Okay, think of a rock band. Let's get the most generic, basic... Right. If we could just think of just a g- generic rock band, okay. Nickelback is that. Right. There's nothing really distinctive nothing about, them. about them. Nothing dangerous. Nothing like. There's no. Nothing, nothing that separates them from anybody else. I mean, okay. just that music is just kind of right in the middle of it, right. of the whole universe of. Like it, it could you, get caught up in it and just be in the blend, you know. Would what I mean? you say it would be a heavy version of Elevator Muzak? Based on what you're saying, that's what I'm hearing you say. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. that's yeah, fair you, enough. You could easily hear Nickelback across all grocery stores in America. Oh, absolutely, yeah. It's safe. It's safe. Thank you. Yeah. One article that I read, kind of looking into this, why does everybody hate Nickelback? Why do they catch so much shit? There was a an article I read that said basically said admitting that you like Nickelback is the equivalent of saying that you hate puppies and kittens. That's a strong statement. That's a little extreme. It's a little extreme, but it it points out the the thinking out there about the hatred for this band. I mean, it's not just, a, I don't like that band. This is a, I fucking hate that band. It's, it's that mentality. It's not just a, I don't like it. I freaking hate it. As a Bon Jovi, this millennium for you. Yes. For me. Yes. I understand they're your, that. They're your Bon Jovi. Hate, hate takes a lot of effort. Yeah. Oh, I'm, Oh, I'm, and I'm about to give some examples of effort. Okay. So I did see a clip on somewhere I ran across it and I don't know true or not, but it read, if you play a Nickelback song backwards, you'll hear messages from the devil. Even worse. If you play it forwards, you'll hear, you'll hear Nickelback. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Strong. Jeez. So let's uh, quickly just kind of dive into who Nickelback is. According to Wikipedia, Canadian rock band formed in 1995 uh, band members, guitarist, vocalist, Chad Kroger, Guitarist, keyboardist, Ryan Peek, bassist, Mike Kroger, and they've had several drummer changes, but I believe they've landed on a gentleman named Daniel Adair at this time. One uh, one equivalent I saw was uh, Nickelback is Canada's answer to the band Creed. Yeah. Yeah. Which, good. Yep, that's yeah, good. I, I see that. Prior to being called Nickelback, they were a cover band in the early 90s. The band name was Village Idiot. Which I thought was a brilliant name. Yeah, they should have they stuck with that. Stuck with that. I'm yeah. sure, but corporate got a hold of them. Sure. And there's a story that uh, says that Chad Kroger, singer guitarist, asked his stepfather to give him four thousand dollars to record a demo. They spent two thousand recording the EP, and then took the other two thousand and bought magic mushrooms. God, mushrooms cost that much? I have no idea. But yeah. maybe maybe it's stockpiling. Jeez. Okay. Yeah. Uh, around 2001. Now, I found this interesting. Around 2001, there's a story. That, that explains his hairstyle. It could. Yeah. Could. I mean, yeah. My, only mushrooms could make hair happen like that. Around 2001, Chad supposedly started studying all the music on the radio and on the charts, looking for 
why this song, why these songs did well. Oh, he starts searching for the formula. Yeah, I love it. So my question is, based on their songs, is it possible this guy discovered the magic formula of writing a hit song? And if he did, is it a blessing or a curse or both? Because for the band, it's a blessing. But for the fans that hate them so strongly, it's a curse. They sold out the arena in town. You remember that? I'm good. Again, yeah, I get it. It's, I mean, they had a following. That's that's what boggles the mind, is why are they hated so strongly, yet so successful? Because normally, you you got a band that people hate, they go away. They don't stick around. People don't go see them live. People don't buy their stuff. If a band is that terrible, that's what, that's what blows my mind, is everybody hates Nickelback, yet... They sold millions of records. I think the thing selling is selling out shows. Well, they were the problem is they were a pop band. I mean, they, they were pop music. Yeah, I mean, you don't sell out arenas if you're not popular, right? And the problem with you know pop music, it's like chewing gum. I mean, you chew, chew, chew till the flavor's gone. You spit it out. Yep. You know, and that's what I think happened to bands like Creed and Nickelback. Right. right? Yeah. It, yeah. It's a perfect analogy. They're like chewing gum. Yeah, I like that. So, like I said, these guys hugely popular. They have nine records released as of 2017. Looking on the charts, there's a weird 2021 release called Rockstar Sea Shanty, which is basically the Rockstar song done by, I guess, Drunk Irish Pirates. I listen to it. I don't get it. It's kind of a... Shandy? Like a, shanty. Like a fruit beer? Shanty. T-Y. Oh, T-Y. Got, yep. Gotcha. So... According to the Observer.com page, there are a lot of bands that people dislike and even hate, but what usually happens, like I just said, is that no one listens to their music, no one goes to their shows, and they eventually fade into oblivion. Nickelback has been called the world's most hated band, yet we're very successful. Now, when you ask yourself, how hated is this band? There was a crowdfunding campaign to keep Nickelback out of London at one time. (laughs) If you type in, why do people hate Nickelback in Google?, you will have days of reading. When it was announced, Nickelback would play the halftime show at the Lions Thanksgiving Day game years ago. A petition to replace them got more than 55,000 signatures online. Good Lord. And there's even a, the TV show American Dad, there's even a clip with Stan talking shit on him. Really? Oh, God, yeah. There's a little five-second clip about him wanting to listen to this Nickelback CD, but he's referring to putting it on the ground and listening to it crackle as he drives over it. Wow. They've gone the way of like winger and warrant and, and then some, but I, I don't even, but I probably worse than warrant. Cause at least there's a cult following. Yeah. Of that. That's interesting. I've never really paid attention to go back enough to it, it's, think there was that it's much always hatred. been in the back of my mind is why do people just hate this band? But it's it just it just I guess now just come up. But I did I, I will say with all the negativity, I did find a YouTube clip with Deadpool and Fred Savage. Uh, is that Wonder Years? Is that Fred Savage? Yeah, Fred Savage. Yeah, Deadpool and Fred Savage, where they stand up for Nickelback, and it's a. Uh, I'll I'll try to find that. The Marvel hero. Yeah, Deadpool? Deadpool. Yep. Okay. I'll try to find that clip Ryan again and, and put it put a link to it because okay. it was it was actually pretty entertaining. <laughs> 
So like I said, Nickelback sold more than 50 million albums worldwide. These guys sold out Madison Square Garden, nominated for six Grammys, yet everyone says they hate them. I don't get it. You think it's the Rockstar song? Well, I've got some theories as to why they are so hated. Okay, Yeah, there's some theories out there. Um, Main argument that I've found for people hating the band is their music is bland and generic, as you talked about, and all their songs sound the same. But again, both of those things, I think you can say that about a lot of bands. I mean, if you said all the songs sound the same, ACDC, all their songs sound the same, yet freaking love ACDC. I'm about ready to explode on you. No, I'm, not, I'm, I'm just saying, if, if you were to say, I mean, the joke with ACDC has been they've written the same record over and over and over. I mean, they've got their sound. They've got what it is. I'm not, I'm not slamming them. I love ACDC. Yeah, I got you. Like the Ramones and yeah, the, it's it's the same sound throughout. Right. So if if people hate Nickelback because their stuff all sounds the same, well, you got a Motorhead shirt on. Uh, yeah. Why yeah. doesn't it apply to any of those other bands? I don't yeah. know. Yeah. But I will say they do know how to deliver an anthemic party on song. So getting to the some of the theories of why people hate Nickelback. First theory I found was the first record deal they had in 1999 was with Roadrunner Records. It was predominantly an extreme metal label. They didn't fit in with what the what was called the quote-unquote culture of the label. They were, you remember Roadrunner? I mean, they were heavy shit. Machine Head and Slipknot. Just yeah, hit. they were always yeah. promoting albums on like Hit Parade or Metal yep. Edge. Yep. So, so that was their first record label. They got a ton of attention from the label, and I think it was basically because I think that band, Nickelback, became so so much more popular than some of those other extreme metal bands. That, that was kind of the money coming in from the Nickelback train was funding all the other band projects. The so, chicks, chicks dug, dug him. Yeah, exactly. People were disgruntled about how much time and attention they got instead of the artists they were trying, and they were trying to reshape the face of metal. There was a 2004 promo sampler sent out by the label that featured bands like Slipknot, Machine Head, and Nightwish alongside of the Nickelback. So... It's kind of one of those, one of these things is not like the other. Resentful. Kind of deal. So theory one is people hate him because this Roadrunner Records label deal. Why were they even there? Second theory, around 2002 to 2004, there was a show on Comedy Central, I believe, called Tough Crowd with Colin Quinn, comedian. It was a panel comedy show. There were basically four comedians discussing topical news stories and there was one clip featuring a comedian named, I hope I'm saying this right, Brian Posen. Uh, he's one of my, I, anytime I see him in something, I love him. He's just, he's just a weird, quirky dude, but he's, he's always funny to me. But there's a, a, fe- a clip featuring him saying something about a study. They were talking about how violent music leads to violent behavior. And Brian's comment was there were no studies to show how bad music makes people violent and mentioned that Nickelback, Music makes him want to kill Nickelback. So. <laughs> How you spell that last name, Posen? P-O-S-E-H-N. E-H-N. Okay. Yep. So he made this comment, and basically this uh, this this comment, this clip of him talking about, I guess, was kind of the commercial, and it was shown over and over and over, and that's that's 
what they used to advertise the show. It was that little clip was part of what they were showing there. Okay. Now, Brian, I kind of went into him a little bit because it leads to something else, but he's a writer, actor, stand-up comic. He's been in many sitcoms and shows, writer and performer on The Mr. Show and the With Bob and David show that's on now on Netflix. I know him best. He was in that Rob Zombie Devil's Rejects. He was kind of the roadie of the family band. Uh, when you If you see him, you'll know him. Okay. He's one of those guys. But there was a meme I ran across years ago, and it's one of my favorite. And 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 Brian Posen is a, he's like a defender of rock and roll. He's a metalhead through and through. And there's a meme of him with a quote of his that says, uh, "I love metalheads. When I mention metal, people go crazy because you have to give it up. You never see a guy with a shirt off screaming R and B." Metalheads are different from any other fan of music. We have like we have like our own symbol that means metal, which is the devil horn gesture hand thing. You just need to do that to another metalhead, and he's just like, indeed. Oh, I, I pulled up a picture of him. Yeah, this yeah. guy is. Uh, yeah, he is yeah. definitely a metalhead. Yeah, he, that's all he loves to talk about. Yep. So, going back to Nickelback, like I said, that that joke he made about them on that show was it kind of caught on and. Uh, it was compared to the same comments typically made about the band Creed, but this was brought it was broadcast over and over. Eventually, the ad and the joke faded, but there was staying power in the sentiment and put Nickelback on the map as the most hated band and a joke. So that's theory two hmm. of how this hatred for Nickelback came to be. Theory three: vocalist Chad Kroger's image, his image, Kroger Krager. I don't know how you say it, but his image. So you think of a typical rock front man, badass, edgy, rebellious, creative, sexy, Robert Plant, Bon Scott, Mick Jagger, Steven Tyler, classic rock front man. Yeah. Some say that there was something about him that just doesn't give off a cool vibe. Others say he puts off an arrogance about himself. I'm not one to judge. I mean, he's kind of hokey looking to me, but who am I? He's gotten rid of that, that, you know, Cocker Spaniel hair or whatever, you know, I'm talking about. Yep. Yep. Uh, at least that's gone. I yeah. Mean, I mean, but that didn't annoy me enough to hate. Right? Again, yeah. This is another internet theory I found, but his image is why people just can't stand the band is because the vibe he's putting off. Yeah, okay. So, and then the fourth theory is uh, they were a sellout from the get-go, which kind of ties back to that whole rock and roll formula thing. I mean, if he sat down and did the math and figured out the formula for hit songs... This this one kind of makes sense. Their sound is highly produced. They look like a boy band. Uh, they got they got popular <laughs> pretty quickly, but didn't pay their dues. They're an okay rock band that was turned into a project by the labels, and again, heavily produced, overhyped, and overplayed. It, that's that's another theory of why people hate them. It's just too much, too fast, and didn't pay their dues. Yeah, and, they looked like they were made in the lab. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah I get that. Yeah. So that's the one I kind of tend to lean towards based on reading that article about how he studied what makes hit songs hit songs. And if you take that and apply it to what you're doing, that, again, it's all going to kind of come out to where you're, you're manufactured and not organic. And, the, and, you need, to... and you need some of that, I think. I think that's with rock. You need some of that street cred, if you will. Well, and Chad... When you think of Nickelback, you think of the lead singer, Chad. Yeah. Do you think of anybody else in the band? No. I mean, they could all be replaced tomorrow. Oh, yeah. And you wouldn't know it. I yeah, mean, he's, he's the guy. 
Yeah. yeah. Whereas I think, you know, you, you mentioned Creed, you know, everybody thinks of Scott Stabb, but I think of the guitar player that went on the altar bridge and, you know, has done stuff with Wolfgang Van Halen. What's his name? <sighs> yeah. See? But I'm not a huge you, fan. You threw Scott Stapp out quick. But everybody I know hates who you're talking Scott about, Stapp. but I can't think of that dude. I can't think of that guy's name I either. I can't think of it either. I'm talking about yeah. But everybody hates Scott Stapp. Oh, yeah. Because of exactly what you talk about that. He, he just exudes he ego. Puts off a vibe. Yeah. And the worry, he, we had a, there was a guy that worked at the office that he was in charge of, you know, set up strike, clean up. Right. You know. And we had a day where we walked, when we talked to each other, we had to talk like Scott Stapp sung. <laughs> so, you know, when I'd walk up to him, I'd tell him, what, how many maids and porters will you have at the show tonight? got <laughs> to get down like this. You know how Scott Stapp sings. How long did it take for that got old? We laughed every time. Yeah, okay. All right. And we just find, try to come up with any excuse. Just come up with a reason to talk to him just so you could sing Scott Snap to him. Oh, how was your drive to work today? You know. <laughs> how, how was the drive to work today? That's awesome. Oh, God. All right. Even even when my daughter was born, he, like, texted me to congratulate me yeah. you know, when I was at the hospital. And I, I said, uh, you know, why is the song Arms Wide Open going right, through yeah, my head right now? As soon as you said when my daughter was born, <laughs> the Arms Wide Open immediately <laughs> popped into my head. Welcome to this place. <laughs> I'll show you everything. Oh, shit. All right, back to Nickelback. So you got all these theories about why people hate them or not fans of them or whatever you want to call it. Then they released the Rockstar single in 2006, which is going to be my song of the week, Rockstar okay. Nickelback. Yeah, I know. Which uh, the song is focused on materialistic, pretentious, and misogynistic desires of wannabe rock stars. Rock star was played to death on the radio, and some say the irony was too real. The status as a joke skyrocketed. So just a matter of bad timing. I think that's the one that killed him. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. But But the thing is, when I listen to that song, it seems to me that it's one of those songs that was kind of written in jest. It was kind of a joke. It was, hey, let's write this over the top. Let's just be obnoxious about it. It'll be funny. Right. But it just hit wrong. It hit wrong because it was like a Broadway tribute to kind of, rock yeah. music. Exactly. Um, now, this song actually saw commercial success, but is generally considered the worst song of their career. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Negative reviews uh, made some worst song ever lists. 2012 BuzzFeed article had it listed as number two worst song ever written. Can you guess what the number one is? Oh, and now we're talking rock songs? Yeah, I, I guess. all genres? No, I'm going to say rock songs because it's BuzzFeed. So, and it's a rock song, so I'll give you that clue. Oh, man. Worst song ever written. Um, can you give like a decade? I, um, I'm going to say probably late 90s, early 2000s. I'll give you a, cl- a clue. If somebody asked you, why do you do it? Oh, Limp Biscuit. Do it all for the, the nookie. nookie. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I that was you. the number one on this 2012 article I read. Limp Biscuit Nookie was the the number one worst song ever written. Talk about hated bands toward the end of it. Right? Yeah. Oh yeah. And I, when I saw the Nookie thing, I, you know, we got this the 4-H fair, county fair, whatever every year. Oh yeah, that's a good one. And there was a couple years back, we we usually try to go up there where my mom will come out, my brother will come out. We kind of go walk around 
eat fair food and right. the rides and all that shit with the kids. Mm-hmm. And there was one year, Friday nights, they have like a karaoke contest kind of thing. Mm. And uh, as a joke, me and my brother were saying, man, we should, we should get in on that. What's, <laughs> what song should we do? Let's do Limp Biscuit Nookie. Oh, that's so, family friendly. So yeah, so we talked about doing that, and I said the only I, my my only stipulation was I would only agree to do it if he sang the lead, and I was just kind of the backup hype guy, you know, the guy that yeah, I did it all for the, you know, just kind of emphasize the emphasis unedited guy. version. Yeah, I think yeah, we the plan was to go unedited. Yeah, okay, and of course this thing never came to fruition. Never happened. It's like you're after- But I still think about it. Every time the county fair comes by, you know, whenever they announce the dates, I'm just like, shit, we got to get that nookie together, man. We got to do that. Time's running out. I, yeah, I know. I know. I, and I, it's probably something I should have done over this COVID, man. I should have worked on my rehearsal with it. I've wasted that year. So uh, back to the Nickelback. <laughs> that's always, but that's always a fun. Every time I hear nookie. And it comes up in the shuffle every now and then because I got it in there. But I always think, I was like, God, that would be so much fun to just have done that with my brother because he's he's a, he's a showman. He he really would have put on a show. It's not too late, man. It no, it's not I know, too late. I know. There's still time. There's still time. But I, I, yeah, that that you sh- you need to do it for your own therapy. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Okay, we'll see. So back to Nickelback, a lot of memes started popping up about them. My favorite was a cartoon kid on Santa's lap, and it reads, Due to a coal shortage, Santa will be giving all bad little boys and girls Nickelback CDs. And there's a lot, there's a shit ton of them. So just Google back, or Google Nickelback. Google back. Google back. Yeah. Google Nickelback memes, and there's a shit ton of them. Okay. So you, uh, you won't have any trouble finding them. Oh, man. This all sounds very depressing. Well, here's here's the little bright light. After years of this, Nickelback has embraced the role as a meme. January 2012, they started posting sarcastic responses to insults they got on Twitter. When someone told him to just die, they responded with, we're immortals sent here to torment you. <laughs> and so after years and years of this hatred of the band, the band seems to have kind of tried to take a comedic role in, in responding to things. I the ones uh, the examples on that i get what they're doing i don't know if they're doing it correctly it seems like they're they're having it seems like they have the right attitude but the the delivery of their responses some of them were just like "Eh, you could have probably done better but again i don't know kind of impulsive not so funny stuff yeah yeah trying to be funny but you know it's kind of like me i say a lot of shit that in my head sounds hilarious but when we all do but when it comes out it's it's okay that silence afterwards is like, all right, yeah. I need to shut up. Yeah, exactly. I've had many days like that. And back in 2014, uh, Kroger, Krager, however you say it, told uh, Blabbermouth.net that the band doesn't take themselves as serious as people make them out to be. So, I like Kroger because, you know, you like Kroger we're, we're talking about how they're safe for stores to play. Yep, yep. So here's the deal. All this leads up to this. If I hear the song, How You Remind Me, I am going to bask in the glow of it. I mean, as much as Nickelback kind of gets under my skin, there's something about certain songs. And, you know, I'm not going to put a CD on. I'm not going to, I'm not going to listen to a song all the way through. I'm going to give it a couple seconds because there are parts of songs that I get it. You know, if this dude figured out the formula, he's brilliant because there's something in Nickelback songs, admit it or not, there's something in some of these songs that is like a, 
freaking fish hook that just gets in you. And I, I don't know what it is. I don't know what, for me anyway. So like I said, if I hear how you remind me, I'm going to listen to it for a minute. It's It's got a great hook. If I hear burn it to the ground, I'm going to give it a hell yeah, because that fucking guitar hook is infectious. I don't know. They're, they're, How's that go? Dum, da, 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 dum, da, da, da. I don't fucking know how it goes. I can't. I'm not. I'm not good at the Jimmy voices. Yeah, I'm not real good at that. But yeah, go listen to "Burn It to the Ground." That guitar is. It's got. A, and again, you hate this, but that song's got that Motley Crue kickstart. My heart. Hey, gang vocals in it. Going on. It's just. Yeah. It's 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 a safe, well calculated rock song. I but again, it. the guitar hook is. It gets me. Yeah, the Finn Nickelback. For a second. Absolutely. And, th- and again, I will, before you say anything, I'm not hating on Nico. I, I'm curious as to why. The basic question is, why do so many people hate Nickelback yet they're so successful? For me, I'm not a huge Nickelback fan. I got an answer. Okay. I think everybody's just mad at themselves. Oh. Because Nickelback fooled them all. Jimmy turns the tables. I, I think Nickelback fooled them all. Look in the mirror. Because they had all, they knew all the... They, they figured out the equation, like the formula, you said, yeah. and they, you know, applied they, it. They applied the formula and it had the formula everybody wanted to hear. Yeah. Um, and they bit into it immediately. Yeah. And then they realized I've been had. We've been had. Yeah. Everybody was had. That's why they're, everybody that, that's that went to that sold out concert gotcha. thinking they were the next big thing because they were hitting all the right yeah. emotions, you know, yeah, oh, that yeah. comes to songs. Oh, yeah. And then they realized, Oh, we've been duped. Uh, yeah. We've been duped. Maybe that's what it is. Yeah. I think Nickelback's smarter than you think. Oh, I believe. I, if the dude sat down and came up with the formula for hit songs, we've all underestimated him. We're all in big trouble. Yeah. It's it's a Wizard of Oz thing. You yep. know, don't look behind the curtain. What's yep. really happening? Yep. Even that rock star song, if that song comes on, I'm singing. I'll sing along to it. I don't care. Oh, my God. No. I mean, just no. for a minute. Just, yeah, come on. It's, it's, no. it's, no, it's, it's from so, the get go. It rolls off the tongue. See, I wasn't duped. You weren't? Oh, no. you, you saw through the facade. Yeah, okay. I saw it. I was but just you're like, old school rock and roll, man. You, you, well, I know yeah. the bigger picture. Yeah. And I just, when I first heard Nickelback, I was just like, this is music for drunk chick, chicks at a bar. Okay. Uh, this first thing and I And I've been to of, a Nickelback concert. There's plenty of drunk dudes at the bar, too, listening to them. Well, they're with their drunk chicks. Yeah. They look like they was having a good well, time. And then it goes back to the people that were duped, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. No, I like that, duped. Yeah, okay. The song Animals, classic rock anthem, arena rock anthem. And there's there's a ton of songs they have that are strong sexual innuendo bullshit that are just, uh, you're just like, whatever. But they get you because it's got a fucking cool-ass guitar hook or something stupid in the song that's like, oh, okay, yeah, I'll I'll tolerate it for that fucking sweet guitar sound. For me, anyway. That's yeah. this is this I is my you. theory. So, mm-hmm. I you know there was even like I said I've seen him live. I spent most of the day or the evening at the show talking to people at the venue that I knew. So I really I went to the show, but I really at one point Misty came was like, "Are you gonna come watch the show?" Right. We went with a group of people. It was and it was a great time. And again, it's great background music. It's just it's it's that. I'm not going to pay attention to it, but it's got just enough groove to it. I don't, I don't, I don't know how to better describe it. It's just, it's, it's good background music. It's, you know, a it's, lot, right, it's right down the middle. A lot of party memories that I have, there's probably been a Nickelback song playing in the background at some point. So 
So that's that's you know, and if you truly if if you cannot stay in Nickelback, I'm not staying in your way. Hate them all you want, I don't care. But for me, it's I'm I'm very curious how a band is so hated, but was so successful. And your theory kind of explains that. I mean, it's they were so successful at the time that nobody figured it out. And then as soon as everybody figured out they'd been had, that's why they've got all the hatred now. That makes sense to me. I can sleep at night now. I'm I'm at peace with that. But again, I'll still say I don't, you know, there's a ton of bands out there to hate. I don't know if Nickelback's worth spending a whole lot of time on. Yeah, well. But if that's your torch, man. The difference between, you know, you know my hatred of Bon Jovi. Yes. Um, the difference between, I think the difference between Nickelback and Bon Jovi, why Bon Jovi still adored it's because they never came out with a, a rock star song, America a generic, and generic Americana song like that. I would argue that, uh, what's that? I'm a cowboy on the steel horse I ride, one dead or alive. That, but that was, I, I guess you're talking it, somebody that hates Bon Jovi. Yeah. But you're just saying they didn't come out with that rock star type song. I would argue that that one dead or alive. Is the Bon Jovi version of that? But the difference, love. but the difference being, it wasn't a hey, let's make this kind of a joke and go over the top and be obnoxious about it. Right? Bon Jovi means that shit. Yeah. Okay. When when he says he's seen a million faces and rocked them all, you know he has. You believe him. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I still get I still get goosebumps. <sighs> I love that part. God, you gotta be kidding me, well, I, dude. Yeah, I love that song. I'm not ashamed of it. That's. But, hey, people love it. Yeah. I when I was fifteen and saw, I was just like, right, "No, this is wait a minute, what's going on here? There's something not right about this. Something's amiss." Yeah, this guy is using the whole metal genre to push uh, push there's his there's agenda. A, there's a secret He's Bon Jovi metal. agenda. This guy's not metal. It's like it's like Elf, you know. And this is not Santa. Yeah, you know. That that's why that's the way I feel about Bon Jovi in '86. Okay. There you go. <laughs> and and one day maybe we'll all be like, shit. We'll look back and think, Jimmy was right. No, no. At this point, it, no, because that, that was. I mean, well, how many years ago <laughs> was that? Now, right. thirty four, thirty five years ago that but, song came out. But if Bon Jovi's got some sinister plan going on, do you think he sits around and just goes, God, I can't believe they keep buying. I can't believe they even figured me out yet. That's what that's that's the question I have now. Hey, people are blindly loyal. Oh, blindly yeah. loyal. Yeah. I mean, Richie Sambora's not even in the band no, anymore, huh? Huh. and they don't care. It's not about Richie. It's it was. A, it never was. Yeah. And it it, it Richie helped his agenda. Oh man, he wouldn't have gotten nowhere near where he's at without Richie. All right. Richie so, was the key for a lot of that '80s success shit, man. But in the end, he didn't matter. Yeah. Like Lincoln Park said. <laughs> now we're quoting Lincoln Park. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> All right. That's it. That's my song. Nickelback Rockstar. Love it. Hate it. Again, there's a ton of Nickelback songs that for whatever reason, there's just a, there's a nugget in there that if, if a song comes on, okay, I'm going to wait till that part. Hear it, get my fix of it, and then move on. So Nickelback Rockstar. Gotcha. And uh, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I feel like I should apologize for it. Uh, the fact it's on your playlist is interesting. Oh, uh, I got a bunch of their songs. This afternoon song, a whole Cheech and Chong vibe that's corny as shit. It comes on, yeah, I'll enjoy it for a minute. 
Okay. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not afraid to say that I will enjoy. Now, Creed, I'll fucking turn Creed off. I can't stand. See, I would Creed. rather listen to Creed just because. Oh, no hell no. The whole joke behind Stab. No hell no. And that that vocal presentation. Nope. Nope. <laughs> I just oh. Uh, when you are yeah. with me, yeah. I never oh Creed. I'm oh. free. <laughs> God, you sound just like him. Oh, do I? Thank you. <laughs> how, do, how do you do it? All right. What do you got, Jimmy? Uh, well, okay. I saw where we lost another icon from the world of music a couple of weeks ago. Uh, at least from the golden age of MTV music, Miss Tawny Katane. Yes. Uh, happened while you're, I, I, it happened when you were off. Yeah. Training. What were you doing last training? I had some training last week I had to go to. What were they training you? Just, it's, it's been a year since we've really kind of done my, you know, I've done my job as I do it. And so we've spent the last year kind of redefining some of the, the, how we do things and how things should be done and, and just kind of get every, got everybody in the office that does what I do together. And we just kind of went through, Hey, this, you know, we, everybody kind of does the same thing, but a little differently. So just for a consistency sake, it was a, just a, Hey, here's a reminder. We're all rusty at doing this. Let's remember how to do all this stuff correctly. You're talking about the uh, touring uh, shows. Yeah. Just being on concerts. the road. Hand, yeah. Doing shows. Okay. Gotcha. So it was, it was good. It was great. I dude, it was, it was a nice refresher course to get back on the horse for the battle we're getting ready to go into. Of Got your mind right. A thousand dates, yes. Okay. All right. So, yeah, Miss Tony Katane died at the young age of 59. Uh, I get last week, a couple of weeks ago now, by now. Uh, definitely made a name for herself in the 1980s. I first encountered her, like most guys our age, Todd, uh, in the movie Bachelor Party. Yes. Uh, playing the bride-to-be to a very young Tom Hanks, fresh off his... TV series, Boozum Buddies. Right. Uh, great movie if you've never seen it. Um, if you're a guy, I don't know. It's a little. It's that 80s. In today's world. Yeah, probably, you're probably getting in trouble for some of the shit that they did. Exploitation so, yeah. of women type yep. of thing. But uh, then she reappeared on the cover of the Rat Out of Cellar album. I, I never knew that was her on that cover. You never knew that? Until, like I said, when all the articles were coming out about her passing and looking into it, said she was on that. I was like, no shit. I, I had never known that. I was a fan of Tawny in my teenage oh, years. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, so <laughs> I was a little sad to see that she did. Uh, oh, yeah, definitely. That she'd passed on. But And she was also in that rap video for the song Back For More. Uh, she was da- she actually started dating the guitar player Robin Crosby in high Oh, school. no shit. Yeah. Yeah, it was interesting how that broke up. She was... Dating, having an extramarital affair with O.J. Simpson. Um, wow. Yeah. While he was married to his wife, he... The one that was murdered. Was murdered. He's still looking for the murderer. Okay. But uh, he had to break up with Tawny because O.J. was like, you stay away from that rock star. Here I am providing... Right. You know, being your sugar daddy. I don't want you seeing that rock star anymore. Wow. Really controlling over Tawny was the story... Robin Crosby told about it. So okay. he's just, and Robin's not, he's a non confrontational guy by right. nature. So he's just like, I thought that was interesting. And but, from what I remember, that dude, that Robin from Rat, he was, he was a big dude. He was, if a big you look dude. at pictures of him holding the guitar, the guitar looks small. Yeah. Cause he was so tall. Well, his theory was, you know, hey, I could hold my own, but, you know, you're talking about a guy that used to run over. Yeah, dude's bigger than him, so yeah. he probably wouldn't know what to do with me. Yeah, so oh, yeah. that's why he stayed away from OJ. <laughs> yep, um, and probably smart for doing it because Lord knows what would have happened. <laughs> um, and talking Tawny, you know, then of course she became world famous for 
her partnership with David Coverdale and the videos for the band White Snake. Uh, she was very much a part of the '80s pop culture. So I thought I'd cover the most famous video collaboration with the band White Snake. Yes, the one where she does a somersault on top of two jaguars. We all know it. The overplayed, but still fantastic. Classic. Here I go again. Classic uh, image of her on those cars, man. Yeah, that's iconic. Like anybody that was in high school around that time and saw that. Just Holy like, shit. Have you seen that video? That This is the girl for me. <clears throat> the, the song was written by. I, I'm going to marry her. I'm going to meet her and I'm going to marry her. Oh, yeah. I don't think I'd, I, I'd, no? I'd. Well, I mean, David Coverdale. How are you going to compete? How do you compete? Yeah. yeah I, I get it. I, I knew I had no chance. <laughs> but you never know. You never know. Uh, let's see. The song was written uh, when frontman David Coverdale was going through the pain of his divorce from his first wife. They just had a baby, but they were already on the outs. So, you know, this is like 78, 79, I think, around that time he got the divorce from a, a German model. Uh, so David wrote about his pain in music, which helped create my song this week. The version Tawny is tied to is off the 87 self-entitled album, but that version is a re-release. There are actually three versions of this song released to the world in total, and we'll touch on all three and the pain behind each of them, especially the pain behind the research on this. When I opened up that door, <laughs> it opened up a whole world of So three uh, versions drama. of the same song, were they all White Snake versions? All White Snake versions. So did it, thought it could do it better, did it again? Thought it could still be better. Oh, these stories. Oh, there's a lot more. Wow. A lot more to it than that. Um, Okay, so the first version was on Whitesnake's 1982 Saints and Sinners album, a song co-written. Like I said, David Coverdale wrote the lyrics, uh, but he co-wrote it with fellow bandmate at the time, guitarist Bernie Marsden. The lineup included David's David's bandmates from his Deep Purple days, um, drummer Ian Pace and... Hammond organ extraordinaire, Mr. John Lord. Nice. Um, along with Mickey Moody and Neil Murray. This is the line that more or less recorded those first five albums that were big in Europe but didn't do anything in the U.S. Um, now, to tell Tony Katane's story in Whitesnake and the backstory of the other two versions of Here I Go Again, we have to first start with the man that made Whitesnake a success in America. And that man is John Kalogner. Uh, Todd, do you remember the Aerosmith video, Dude Looks Like a Lady? I remember the song, but not necessarily the video. Um, well, John Kalogner appeared in that video. Uh, he was the long-bearded guy with the circular glasses that was wearing the white wedding dress. I'm getting an image in my head, yes. And then there was a girl, a blonde girl, that was dressed in the in the groomsman tuxedo. Okay. Uh, that was John Kalogner. And I, well, maybe you've seen the... Uh, Sammy Hagar, I Can't Drive 55 video. Do you remember that? Where I he, just him driving down the highway screaming he can't drive 55. Kalogner played the judge when Sammy oh, okay. was on trial in the video. Gotcha. He had the little miniature guillotine to cut a cigar next to him on the bench. Right. Like he cut the cigar and, that, yeah. and Sammy kind of grabs his neck. It's all coming neck. back, yeah. Yeah, uh, that's Kalogner. Um, he worked for Atlanta Records, Atlantic Records, from 1976 to 1980 where he landed the band Foreigner and worked with them on their first three records. He takes credit for signing ACDC to Atlantic. That's up for debate. There's a few people that take credit for that. But he was responsible for making sure their Highway to Hell album was packaged to sell in the U.S. market, which the band had not had a whole lot of success tapping into at the time. 
Wow. And, you know, that whole sound, Highway to Hell, mm-hmm. you compared to like an album like Powerage or, you know, yeah. but, you know, High Voltage or whatever. I mean, it definitely has a different vibe to it. Uh, Kalogner was was behind that. But in his heyday was his years with Geffen from 1980 to 1994. David Geffen personally sought Klogner out to be the first executive A&R rep for his new label, where he went on to work with bands like Asia, White Zombie, Wang Chung, XTC, Nelson. Remember Nelson? Oh, yeah. I can't live without your love and affection. Yeah, Ricky Nelson twins, Gunner, and uh, I can't think of the other one's name. All right. Yeah. No one remembers uh, the other brother. Uh, he worked with Damn Yankees, Bon Jovi, Survivor, and like I said, Sammy Hagar. Uh, Kalogner reinvented Cher in the late 80s with songs like Jesse James and If I Could Turn Back Time. He reinvented Aerosmith when they joined Geffen for the albums uh, Done With Mirrors, Permanent Vacation, Pump, Get a Grip, so on. Um, he's especially credited for getting them off drugs in 86. 86 was a rough year for him dealing with Aerosmith and White Snake's issues, but we'll get into that. I saw and read a couple of great interviews, and um, this is where we kind of dig into your question of the week last week. Okay. Kalogner, as a A&R rep, was not only in charge of finding new talent to bring in onto the record label, but he was in charge of music, choice of songs, choice of producers, how the song was done, album covers, and usually all the treatments, video, promotion, basically director of the band's music. Producers get a lot of credit, but A&R guys are the ones directing the sound, making sure it fits the record company's vision for the band. Right. Kalogner admitted the A&R man in those days was the most hated by the band because unlike band managers or agents who the band could fire, A&R reps are paid by the record company and not by the band. And the A&R reps' only concern is making the record company as much profit as it can off a band's album. You know, get, getting it right for the, uh, you know, for the, the heads of the record label. They are the only person that criticizes the band, tells them no, Pushes them to do better and never kisses the band's ass. Okay. Um, now, Todd, this is where we uh, get into your Rock is Dead question. In an interview, Klogner was asked if he thought the, a new Guns N' Roses album would go platinum in, the, in today's world. Klogner's responded, a new Guns N' Roses album would never go platinum because the industry is full of yes men who are afraid of losing their salaries, losing their reputation, being disliked by the artists. They will never tell the artists the truth about their music. This is the reason he was fired from Columbia Records. He told Aerosmith the song Jaded from their 2001 Just Push Play right. album yeah. was poorly received, was poorly recorded in digital format, and it needed to be recorded, I guess, in stereo or something non-digital. Digital. Uh, this is the same man who made Aerosmith go back and completely re-record their biggest selling post-70s album called get a grip uh aerosmith was so pissed about the digital format comment they went to the heads of geffen records and demanded that they fire kalogner and as kalogner said the band has not had a top 10 hit since yeah that's that's a tough line to walk man is knowing what the correct answer is on something but being scared to fucking tell it because you get losing fired or retribution or whatever that's yeah yeah, there's no critics like, you know, it, it, he pictures nobody criticizing Guns N' Roses saying, this is crap. You can do better than this. Right. And that's why he thinks 
it would be a poor project because there's not that criticism. Right. Uh, he hadn't, Kalogner had an interesting, interesting theory about musicians who write their own songs. Um, he found that the best songwriters in his experience was the ones that, the ones that made a career out of it usually hit big early in their career, but don't lose grip on the psychic pain or memories of when they were starving, trying to survive, um, when they didn't have a pot to piss in. And he's kind of right, because I remember Dee Snyder talking about the demise of his songwriting in Twisted Sister. Basically, he was, in the interview I saw of Dee Snyder, he was sitting around in his Hollywood mansion with a swimming pool, a beautiful wife, kids, cars, all the money he needed, and was having a hard time coming up with songs about anger. Paul Stanley said the same thing about Gene Simmons wanting to change the band Kiss to write with a darker tone in the early 90s when the grunge movement movement took over pop music. Paul was was like, Gene, what are we going to sing about? How our limo didn't show up on time? Yeah, it's you lose you lose touch, and it's it's nobody's fault. It's not a criticism. It's just it's hard to write about the tough times when you're not living in the tough times. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to yeah, and you know, yeah. bands come and go because of that reason. I think yeah, that makes sense. Klogner said. Most good art comes from people who suffer from hunger or are tortured within themselves. And now medicine has come along to balance out these tortured souls. SSRI, Paxil, Zoloff, Ritalin. Klogner is sure an artist like Steven Tyler or Ann Wilson or the Ramones were outcasts at their school. They didn't fit in. If they were prescribed Ritalin or whatever to normalize their behavior, music would never have never been needed to be an outlet for them. So as a result, music we love suffers for it. Again, another answer for yeah. is rock dead. You don't have tortured souls anymore because they're all medicated. Right. Yep. I mean, it's an interesting theory. Yeah, so yeah, no, that's why I never thought about that. Um, Kalogner went on to say A&R no longer exists because record companies want to sign bands for as little as possible make records as cheap as possible because there's no money in it anymore. Right. Anyone can steal it off the internet and with no A&R representation, the quality of the music suffers. There's no money to invest in a labeled A&R man to get the music right. No money for experimentation. And he went on to say rap music was the final nail in the coffin to his lack of value in music, music argument that happens. Um, that has happened in recent years in music. Uh, it's cheap to make. It's not complicated. Hip hop is based on music already recorded. It's only artistic value is in the urban poetry, not the music. Creating original music requires experimentation, time, money, or studio use. Uh, rap is pre-recorded. You can you can find the right combination on a laptop. I'm not saying I agree with it, but because I don't listen to rap, but I thought that was an interesting comment. I I will say. That when I'm watching like a late night TV, you know, the Tonight Show or whatever, any one of those are, and they've got a musical guest, if it's a rap artist or a hip hop or whatever for that matter, doesn't necessarily have to be that, but it implies what you're saying with rap. If if it's a it's an R&B artist that is just the vocalist kind of, doing a song I'm less interested in it than if I see uh, like somebody with a band behind them mm-hmm. if 
if it's an artist that I've, I have no idea who they are, and re- I may not even like the song, but I'll sit and watch it and be fascinated just because there's a band behind them and I just like watching people play. All right, I'm a guitar yeah. guy. I yeah. mean, I'm a music guy, and that's yeah. why rap never appealed to me because it's, it is Yeah, but my, my point being, it doesn't really appeal to me as well, but it, I, it will get my attention if there is a band present playing the backup music and not just some pre-recorded track. Yeah, I don't. I think we're a majority of people. Okay, I agree with you. Yeah. Um, the final interesting comment he made was: these corporations that bought out the privately owned companies from men like David Geffen, Clive Davis, Ahmad Erdogan, mm-hmm. uh, they have stockholders to please, quarterly earnings reports to address. So if rap is cheap and the public is buying, let's push that product over musically bent material that's expensive to make. Yeah. That makes sense. It's bottom line shit. That that's a great thought of why rock music's not as big as it used to be. Oh, it makes perfect sense. Got to take it back underground. Got to DIY it. Yeah, it's going. It's got to come from the roots again. Yeah, it's got to. But the diff- the difference now though is the technology's there to make that a whole lot easier, and the distribution. It's just quality is a question mark. Quality is a question, and and honestly, I think getting the attention getting attention of who you need to get attention. I mean, it's there's a million YouTube singers out there. What makes the one you're doing stand out amongst the tidal wave of them all? I think a it's, good song will rise to the top. Oh, yeah. Regardless yeah. of Agreed. image or anything. Yeah. If it's a good song, it's going to find a audience. Right. I mean, hell, Summer Breeze by Seals and Cross. Have you seen those guys? <laughs> no. It, it, you don't have to look in any particular way. Okay. <laughs> well, and, and oh, what was I thinking? I don't know. Go ahead. It'll come back to me. Well, I was going to move on to, um, you know. Oh, I got it. Sorry. Yeah. So going back to your A&R guy thing. And mm-hmm. that's the thing, too, is if you've got a band that's got a song and they've we've talked about it before, what it's supposed to sound like and what the vision is is in their head. But you got an A&R guy saying no, you need to change it to this. There's an argument to be made for if you change it, will it be as successful as, you know, that's, that's the, that's the question I asked when you were talking about that is, yeah, you want people to say, Hey, maybe this or that when he was talking about being, you know, fear of being fired for being, not being a yes man. I don't, I don't know where that line is. That's such a hard, he to said, me, that's a hard line to 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 know where it is to between the. I guess I would my approach. I'm thinking would be more of a suggestion of hey, instead of doing this, have you thought about this? But then you interfere with the vision of the song by the the person who created it is or thought of it or whatever you want to call it. I, yeah, I don't know. He said at the beginning of one of the interviews I saw that. He his success rate was about ninety percent. He failed ten percent of the time. Okay, uh, he said that was pretty good for A and R. Yeah, but that's, I mean, you that's, have to be successful in order to keep that job. Yeah, it's just taking an original product and making it marketable, making it right appeal to the masses. Yeah, so it's just tweaking it. I don't know if it's really changing. Well, I, w- I would argue that any tweaking would be a change. Any any having an artist change something would be a, a change from whatever the artist's 
concept was. I'm, and I'm not saying I'm sure we can find it, songs that it, oh, follow your I'm line. I'm sure of there's a thousand songs that somebody thought, man, this is great. And then somebody said, hey, make this change and it made it better. Because you don't, you can't think of everything. I'm interested in the ones that made it worse. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah, that's what I'm getting at. What yeah. if the artist would have, if, if somebody told somebody to change a song and they did it and it made it worse, but there's no way to measure it because it's already been changed. So you, you, there's no way to go back and know it. That's, that's what, I guess musicians my, would know the truth. I think though. we have the same fascination of if somebody told you to change something about a song and it made it worse, you'd have been better off just saying, no, we're going to leave it as is. Well, the first thing that comes to mind was, um, the third, I think it was the fourth rat album. Um, rat kind of, you know, it was after the dance, dancing undercover. Yeah. Album. Third album. The fourth album, which I can't remember because it wasn't successful. Is that the one with Wakel Jr. on it? It might have been. Okay. It might have been. Okay. But I remember watching like a Behind the Music with Rat, and they were talking about the making of that album. Is um, You know, Rat felt it was time to kind of change, you know, kind of transition to something mature else. A bit, yeah. Mature a little bit. Because they've done three albums of that same kind of Rat sound. Yeah. But the the company, the label was like, we're going to, they brought in the same producer and who wanted to mold the songs the same way. And the, it was the bass player. He said, he was making Juan this argument. Crouch. Yeah. He said, he was like, guess what? He's got the same exact thing. It's exactly what we've already done before. Right. There's nothing pushing. We're not pushing the boundaries here. And, uh, you think that's why rat failed started the album, album sales started to slide. Yeah, because they didn't want to get outside or push the boundaries anymore. The, the record label, right? They want to keep them safe. They think that well, if it's if it's don't fix it if it ain't or yeah, don't fix it if it ain't broke mentality. But well, if it's, I think the band knew it's been they working, had to. But yeah, oh yeah, again, you you've got to grow. You got to, and they wouldn't let them. Yeah, was his argument. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. Um, well, they got that sweet Geico commercial going for them now, so. <laughs> things are looking up things work out okay but back to john kalogner's connection to white snake coverdale went to kalogner about doing anything to break big in the u.s this is 83 is after the 82 album saints and sinners album uh, one of the things kalogner was great at was connecting musicians and songwriters together to collaborate and make one plus one equal a thousand and kalogner did that with john sykes kalogner knew sykes um, he knew he had everything Whitesnake needed, the look, the sound, the songwriting ability, uh, even a great singing voice. Then Lizzie had just broke up the band he was in, and then Sykes was available. Klogner can be held responsible for convincing Coverdale to move Sykes in and move the original snake guitarist Mick Moody out. Uh, Klogner's work with getting the 1984 Slide It In album to break in the U.S. market uh, paid off. The album was released in the UK January 18th, 1984, but it had mixed reviews because of the monotone sound. So Kalogner had um, producer Keith Olson, who had worked with Kalogner in, on past albums with Foreigner and Sammy Hagar. He had uh, Keith Olson come in to remix the album to give it a bigger modern sound, as well as have John Sykes and new bass, well, new old bassist Neil Murray come in and re-record the parts of former Whitestick members Mick Moody and Colin Hodgkinson. Uh, 
if you listen to the UK release of Sliding In, you hear Mick Moody and Colin Hodgkinson. On the US version, you'll hear John Saxon and Bill Murray play those parts. And, and even though they're the same songs, you can definitely hear a difference, especially in the guitar solos. Mick Moody was more of a blues guitar player, and Sykes was more of a shredder. But overall, the U.S. version of the album had a bigger sound. You can It really sticks out in the song like Slow and Easy. And the change worked, slided in, reached number 40 in the States, and set up for the next album to be the, ba- the big breakthrough. But that's where things go south. Uh-oh. <sighs> Klogner brought in Mike Stone to produce this next album. Uh, Mike Stone is probably best known for engineering all those classic Queen albums of the 70s. Uh, Mike Stone produced Journey's best-selling albums, Escape and Frontiers. Uh, he produced April Wine's Nature of the Beast, one of my favorites, and worked with Klogner on the first two Asia albums. Uh, I think the Asia album was like number one for nine weeks. Right. For, Huge for record. Yeah. yeah. Hard to believe now, but it was. Yeah. Right. Um, so he naturally was Klogner's choice to, you know, get that sound he wanted for the next White Snake LP to break the band even bigger in the U.S. market. David Coverdale wanted Martin Birch to produce the record. He was comfortable with Martin. He produced all six of the White Snake albums up to that point. And Martin, we've talked about him as the Iron Maiden guy? Yeah, I remember our yeah, yeah. Double Shocker yeah, yeah. episode. Okay. Uh, Martin Birch had just passed away. Yep. So I did. It. we all did a big tribute to Martin Birch and his work with Iron Maiden. Uh, so, yeah, he wanted Martin Birch, uh, but Klogner wanted Stone to give it more of a, as he put it, wanted to give it more of a Bon Jovi slippery when wet sound. Nice. Bon Jovi changed oh, yeah. everything. Yeah. Another argument I got about For why sure, metal yeah. went downhill. John Sykes won the stone because he had worked with him in the past with either Thin Lizzy or Tigers of Pantang uh, uh, band he was in. I can't remember which one it was. Tigers of Pantang. You never heard of Tigers I've of Pantang? I just that, ti- that band name always makes me laugh. Okay. Uh, so Coverdale gave in to Sykes and Kalogner on this. Mike Stone comes in. Musically, everything gets done. And then David comes down with a sinus infection. Uh, it's affecting the way he can sing. He can't sing. Right. It's David just can't function. John Klogner takes him to the best ear, nose, and throat specialist in the world. The prognosis can, comes back. He needs surgery. Has the surgery. David takes time off to recover. After a long recovery, he's physically ready to sing again. But He's having trouble in the studios. Uh, according to John Sykes, David would blame the weather. David would blame the studio. David would blame the microphones. The way Klogner described it, it was kind of like uh, Ricky Bobby in Talladega Nights. When Ricky was sitting in, in that wheelchair, convinced he was paralyzed, and Michael Clark Duncan and John C. Riley were trying to convince him yeah. otherwise. It was it was kind of like that okay. was going on with John Sykes and Klogner talking to Coverdale. Um, Kalogner would bring in holistic people to work with David. He was trying holistic remedies. Uh, he, he was trying everything. He let Mike Stone go and brought in uh, producer Ron Nevison. Uh, Nevison produced the big UFO albums of the 70s, the Babies, uh, Hearts Comeback albums in the mid 80s. Okay. Uh, even Ozzy's Ultimate Sin album. Big name. Yeah. So, so, so that I understand correctly. So the argument is Coverdale is not happy with how he sounds. 
how the vocals it's not are clicking for him. It's not okay. working for him. But there's something. There's always ha- an excuse. If you have that sinus surgery, that's one thing about Freddie Mercury. I always heard is he always wanted to have his teeth fixed or whatever, but was afraid that it would change how his voice. It would affect his voice and his singing. You got to believe you go into sinus surgery knowing, hey, you might sound different when you come out. Only David knows what's going on with David. I guess. I think that's the argument. Yeah. Everybody else sees him just being different. From the outside. And there's just like, there's no, we're doing, there's nothing more we can do. And yeah. the pressure's on to get this album yeah, done. Yeah, right. But David wasn't clicking with Nevison. Days became weeks. Weeks became months. The, day, the president of Geffen and David Geffen himself was on Kalogner's ass to get this record done. Coverdale's debts to the label were mounting. He He's nearly $2 million in debt to the label now. David was living in a hotel room he couldn't afford to check out of. He can't afford car insurance on his Jaguar. <laughs> Sykes said Sykes was said to have been venting out loud about firing Coverdale and singing the vocals himself. Oh. And Coverdale resented Sykes. Yeah. For not for not supporting him emotionally through his turmoil of trying to get these vocals right. I mean, just to keep himself afloat, Coverdale was singing, was singing New York Seltzer commercial jingles in their TV ads just to have some mac and cheese money and maybe take a girlfriend out on a date. <laughs> We're talking about 34, 35-year-old man here. Wow. Uh, Gavin, Geffen Records is about to go under, not only because this Whitesnake album is more than a year overdue, but their other big band, Aerosmith, failed to meet sales expectations with their 85 album, Done With Mirrors. And Kalogner, along with Aerosmith's manager at the time, Tim Collins, had to spend the back half of 86 putting this entire Aerosmith band through rehab. Nothing was happening on the right. for them as well. And one last def- desperate attempt to save his job, Kalogner rehires Keith Olsen to come in and finish production of the album. The same Keith Olsen that remixed their 1984 Slide It In album for the U.S. release that was really well received. And that move saved Kalogner's ass. Coverndale completed his vocals and the album was finished in August of 1986. Remember John David wrote these songs in the spring of 85. That's how long this album took. Not exactly Chinese democracy, but definitely the same kind of shadow hanging over as far as expectation. Yep. But the drama doesn't end there. Okay, there's more. There's more. Coverdale is very resentful of the ones that did not support him during his Ricky Bobby, I am so paralyzed phase uh, <laughs> he went through uh, over the last year. So he fires everybody he can, including the entire band. No shit. Accusing them of trying to form, as the French driver in Talladega Nights, Mr. Jean Girard would say, a coup d'etat. Guitarist Adrian Adrian Vandenberg had an interesting story about Coverdale about the Coverdale Sox breakup. John Kalogner asked Vandenberg to come in and lay down a solo on our song this week. Here I go again because Kalogner told Adrian the solo John Sykes laid down sounded like, and I'm quoting Kalogner, sounded like metal, country, and western. Uh, Vandenberg was already working on the project in the same studio, so he came over to go through the song. While Vandenberg was doing that. John Sykes Uh-oh. comes busting into the room next to Adrian to confront David about being fired from the band. Kalogner apparently called John Sykes, who was in England at the time, to tell John Sykes the bad news. 
But Sykes wasn't having it. Sykes jumped on a plane in England and flew all the way back to L.A. to confront David. Adrian said he wasn't in the room, but he could hear Sykes and Coverdale arguing about it. Sykes accused David of running away from him in, in the studio, and Sykes, to this day, still hates Coverdale with a vengeance. Wow. I heard an interview in 2017 with John Sykes uh, where the interviewer uh, had John Sykes address a rumor that the two of them would play together in concert to celebrate the 30th anniversary of this album. And uh, that was the wrong question to ask John Sykes. The interview <laughs> ended pretty quickly. He just, David Coverdale? I'll tell you about David Coverdale. <laughs> not going to happen. This interview's over, basically, is, oh, was shit. the end of that. Nice. He, his hatred for 30 years. Uh. He just will not let up. So because Adrian was able to lay down a good solo on Here I Go Again, despite all the drama that day, he was the only other guitarist credited upon the album's release. Sykes and Vandenberg never met, though their names are right next to each other on the song's liner notes. Hmm. Todd, we're getting close to the point where Tony Katane enters the picture. Now that the album is done, it's time to promote. And when you're a band in the 80s, that means it's time to make that killer video. Now, Coverdale and Kalogner both agreed the first single on the album should be Still the Night. And Kalogner knew the perfect guy for the job. That man is Marty Colner. Marty Colner, a producer who did many HBO specials in the 80s, wanted to get into rock videos. He is the man that brought us the epic We're Not Gonna Take a Video by Twisted Sister. Nice. Classic. Yeah, that's the one that got his name known in the industry because it was that good. Kalogner arranged... Marty Colner to meet Coverdale for lunch, and according to Marty, David had $5 and a condom in his wallet and was embarrassed to tell Marty he had to pay for lunch. David wanted uh, Marty to make the video for a song Still a Night. Marty loved the song and agreed to do it. The problem was David didn't have a band. He fired everybody. So once again, Kalogner comes to save the day and puts his fantasy band together in time to begin shooting the video. The new band members you see in that video for Still the Night all collectively met for the first time at that shoot. That's how quickly that came together. And after the shoot, the big complaint Marty Colner had was there's no chemistry between these guys. They're just standing around posing while he was filming. It was pretty bad, and it wasn't working for Marty. So Marty went to Geffen and proposed that he could make this video really work with some layered production reshoot it in 60 millimeter film. He estimated the total additional cost would come to around $35,000. Geffen responded with saying, screw David Coverdale. Just go with what you got. We're done with David Coverdale. Yeah. Even the band's managers is like, we're done. Enough's enough. We're done. Enough's enough. Let's recoup, recoup what we can get now. But Marty liked David at the time. And even though David didn't have two pennies to rub together and was living off his girlfriend, Tony Katane, Marty, Marty decided he would cover the cost to get the video done the way Marty saw fit. He ate the entire cost for the video we oh, know shit. and love still in the night. Okay. Now with Marty eating the entire bill for David to finish still of the night video, Marty ran to one hangup. The model he hired to be David's object of affection and the video backed out that model happened to be claudia shifford who was making a name for herself modeling for her guest jeans she went on to, yeah she's briefly married to david coverdale copperfield i'm sorry david copperfield in the 90s too many davids going on here uh this was the night before the video shoot that she backed wow. out the night before 
So he Marty's got to call David, have him come over the to the house and tell him the bad news. David comes over with his girlfriend, you know, our Miss Tawny Katane. And as soon as Marty saw Tawny, he said, you're her. Yep. Her response was, who's she? Marty wanted her to be the girl. Yep. Now, Tawny was hesitant because, you know, at the time she was a movie actor and working TV was a downgrade at the time. But she loved David and wanted to support him and possibly quit making her have to pay all the pay for all the dates they went on. So she agreed to do it. Um, Marty shoots a video, takes the final product to the head of MTV, Sam Kaiser. Phil Carson, former head of Atlantic Records UK, who had a lot of interaction with Led Zeppelin and ACDC in his time, was in Kaiser's office at MTV, and they all watched the video. Phil Carson told Kaiser that Led Zeppelin would die for a video that's good. And Kaiser was impressed by that answer, so he said, okay, I'll make it what MTV called the hit flick of the week, I think it was. And as a result, the album sold a million in the first 10 days of its release wow. because of that video. I, I was one of those million. I went to, you know, I read Hit Parader and Metal Edge yeah. magazines. They told me today it was coming out. You know, I've been waiting. I love Slotted In. Yeah. So I've been waiting for this album. I drove down to the record bar in East Lamont. There you go. Um, went up, you know, went up to the register. A girl was ringing it up and, I guess the store manager was behind her, older guy. I said, ooh, we got a White Snake fan. <laughs> it was kind of odd, but I think he was hitting on the, the girl at the register. Okay. But right. I have a clearer memory of buying that yeah. CD. Um, now we finally arrive at my song of the week, Todd. We're almost done here. Uh, here I Go Again appears on uh, this 87 album only because Klogner wanted it and put the heat on Coverdale to re-record this 1982 track. Coverdale didn't want to do it, but uh, agreed only on the stipulation that he be allowed to re-record Crying in the Rain uh, from the same 1982 Saints and Sinners album. David was never happy with that original version. So that's how we got Crying in the Rain and Here I Go Again on this 87 album. I just realized the irony of Here I Go Again being the irony done again and done again. Oh, my Lord. It just hit me. <sighs> Yeah, it's it, there is irony. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, now, the European version of this album didn't uh, did not have the same track listing as the U.S. I mean, it had all the same songs as the U.S. version, but it had two additional tracks uh, called "Looking for Love" and "You're Gonna Break My Heart Again." I think that's because "Here I Go Again" was a had charted five years earlier, right? So it was like kind of a rehash for the European market. Uh, speaking of that 1982 version of Here I Go Again, it charted in the UK, but definitely had a 70s feel, like more of a deep purplish kind of feel, gotcha. and had the lyrics, like a hobo, I was born to walk alone, instead of the US version, like a drifter, I was born born to walk alone. There are stories that David went with drifter because some not-so-respectful fans were replacing hobo with homo, Uh-oh. and he wanted to make you, sure that didn't happen on the 87 cut. You can't do that. Not like it, not like a homo. No, I said hobo. He didn't want to have to deal with that. Right? Yeah. But apparently, that was an issue when that song came out in Europe. Okay. Uh, Klogner wanted the song on the new album because he he felt it was a worldwide hit. Just the original version was poorly arranged. Instead of the Hammond organ, John Lord used in the original intro to the song. Klogner went with Don Airy and Bill Cuomo to give it more of a modern keyboard sound. 
Kalogner liked the 87 album version, but wanted to make it even more radio-friendly version of Here I Go Again, a version that would cut Don Airy, Don Airy's keyboard out from the beginning, cut it down, you know, about 30 seconds or more to be more fitting for pop radio airplay. Yeah. This is the third version that I mentioned. The only problem was David had already fired his band, and the Vandenberg, Sarzo, Vivian Campbell version was not in place yet when Klogner came to him, wanted to do a radio edit. So Klogner hired the rhythm section of Hart's 80s lineup, Mark Andes and Denny Carmassi, along with the Nashville, local Nashville guitarist Dan Huff, to cut the radio version. So the radio version has a completely different Holy band shit, man. than the studio version. So all three have the only thing they had in common was David Coverdale. Yeah. Completely different bands on all three versions. Uh, David later, David later said he protested the idea of doing this, calling it the prostitution of something he cherished dearly. <laughs> yeah. That's, okay. that's Coverdale. But it worked. The song went number one the week of uh, October 10th, 1987, beating out Lost in Emotion by Lisa Lisa and the Cult Jam, which was in the number two spot. And Todd's favorite song, Carrie, by the band Europe, which was in the number three spot. As far as the video for Here I Go Again, Geffen, this time, fully funded Marty Marty Colner's version vision for the song. In fact, Geffen wanted him to shoot videos for Here I Go Again and Is This Love, another big hit off the album. And to get the most out of the budget money, Colner shot both videos in two consecutive days. That way he could use the same production crew, equipment, et cetera, you know, no, no wasting money for setup and strikes on right. separate occasions. Uh, I will make one comment about Tawny's iconic Jaguar somersault that opens the Here I Go Again video. The black Jaguar you see in it is owned by Marty Coleman. The white one is owned by David Coverdale. Same year, same model, complete coincidence. It's the same white Jaguar Tawny says, that broke down on her first date with David. The blue suit David wore in the video is the same suit he wore on that first date. No shit. I'm sure Tawny picked that one out. Marty, Marty Colner hired Paula Abdul to come in and work with Tawny on the, for the moves yeah. on the top of the Jaguars. Paula Abdul, of course, you know, L.A. cheerleader, dance extraordinaire, yep. asked Tawny if she had any dance experience. Tawny told her that she used to be a gymnast and a ballerina back home growing up in San Diego. So Paula told her, you know, well, get up on top of the Jaguars and show me what you can do. Tony did her somersault on the Jags, the famous ones, famous one we know today. Paula turned to Marty and said, she doesn't need me and walked off. No, no shit. Yep. They shot the somersault and the rest is history. There you go. Tony summed up here. I go again. Best in my opinion. It's, she said it's the ultimate breakup recovery song. It's a song about admitting defeat, dealing with the reality of it, but taking back control. Uh, the ABC network gave Tawny a greatest video babe lifetime achievement award for her work with white snake and for her promotion of the auto industry that happened on the ABC show in 2016 called a show called greatest hits. Uh, all Tawny said to the studio audience upon receiving the award was drive safely. Rest in peace, Tawny. Thank you for all the wonderful memories. Yeah. That's my story. God, that White Snake story. Shit. There's man. a lot. There was a lot of drama. They could make a movie out of White oh, Snake yeah. and all that stuff in the 80s. 
That's crazy. I had no, I mean, I've always heard the rumor and story that, you know, he was difficult to work with and they've obviously been compared to that whole trying to rip off the Led Zeppelin sound and Mm -hmm. all that stuff. But I had no idea. There was a ton of stuff behind the curtain. Jiminy Christmas. Yeah. And that's not even getting into the demise of the band. Right. I mean, you you know, you know, slip of the tongue and how it wasn't as well received. There's a whole backstory to that. Jeez. That's even worse. It's even more depressing. Good night. But here I go again. Yeah. It just, it, you got to talk about the, almost keep... the entire story of the White Snake in the 80s, the rise and, yeah. you know, the top of the mountain, how they, how it all got there. That's... That song is tied to so much drama. Yeah. Ooh. Wore me out. <laughs> <laughs> you look exhausted. Yeah. All right. Well, with that said, you got anything else to add before we wrap this this week's episode up? Uh, next week, I'll have a surprise for you. Oh, Jimmy, here we go. But mm-hmm. I'm going to keep it a secret. Okay. We're like a cliffhanger. Gotcha. I, I would say, do you have a question of the week? Oh, wow. I, I'm so burned out. Yeah, no. <laughs> I, 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 went, I went ahead and wrote one down because okay, I good. thought you might be. Uh, yeah. But my question is, what band do you dick, dislike what band do you dislike the most and why? Just curious. We know my answer. Well, yeah, you're Bon Jovi. And it would take too long to explain why. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and no the, one wants to hear the it. The first one comes to my mind is Creed. It just, it just, they just, it's like. They make me laugh. And they, they aggravate. See, yeah. Creed makes you laugh and they aggravate me. The sound of it aggravates me. Nickelback makes me laugh, and it sounds like you're not buying it. You've got it figured out. I see right through it. Yeah. And it doesn't bother me because I do see right through it. And I think everybody else has yeah. now seen right through it. Right. What bothers me is no one's seen through Bon Jovi. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You and your Bon Jovi crusade. All right. Uh, so, yeah, and I'll put it up on social whatever again instagram facebook and all that stuff which reminds me don't forget to follow us on social social media facebook twitter instagram songs will be on the spotify playlist if you're listening on something you can rate review subscribe do that that helps give us them five stars if you can review it and uh, more importantly tell a friend tell somebody tell somebody you care about hey i'm gonna hit you to something spread the word just tell one person just one's all we ask. You know, I, I would love to get Jared or Handler back on to talk about how the music industry is in Nashville. Yeah. You know, I, I'm sure Justin Moore has probably got some insight on oh, yeah. all the stuff that Kalogner talked about. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. I mean, how does that relate with the Nashville market? It seems like they're the one beacon of hope left in the musically bent kind of industry. That's not rap, yeah. you know, not pre-recorded. Yeah, no, that I, I bet there's a lot of similar stories, but probably not. Maybe, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe I'm making assumptions. We all know the story behind, you know, like the Waylon Jennings story, the whole outlaw thing. Yeah. But is any of that still going on? Oh, I believe it is. I, I would bet it is. Yeah, what battles are Nashville artists having? That that would be interesting. If I had to just throw in and speculation, I would say... Your new, the battle would be the new country sound, if you will, versus the classic country sound, or what you would consider classic country sound. Gotcha. 
you know, that traditional. Oh, hey, I'm right there yeah. with you. I understand. Yeah, that to me that seems to be that would be the 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 battle is which one's right, and I don't know if either one's wrong. So, all right. Well, thanks for listening, Jimmy. Good seeing you. As good always. seeing you, sir. And uh, go listen to some good music. Thanks. Bye.